A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49, starting with verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring back to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Reading from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. The Gospel according to St. John, chapter 1 starting with verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. 
Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who was sent to baptize me with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, it's good to be with you all today. We are continuing this season of Epiphany, the season of the light of God going out into all of the world. In our readings today, we're reminded that our faith is always Jesus-centered and others-reaching. Christianity is not a thing unless it is focused on love for others, and we're reminded of this today. But here's the problem with that. I'm a naturally selfish person, and so are you. <laughs> um, we are often left to our own devices. When we're left to our own devices, we often think about ourselves first. Sometimes we start with ourselves, and then we, we think about our tribe, our family, or the people who are like us or who think like us. This is a survival mechanism for humanity in some ways. It has been throughout the centuries. We protect ourselves. And there's a certain measure of that that's appropriate. But this is also what keeps us insulated, how we think things should operate. It just feels better. It feels right. And then when something comes along that doesn't really fit our principles <laughs> or our view of the world or the principles we hold dear, we balk at that. Tomorrow, we honor the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who challenged the oppress oppression in our systems the ways of thinking about other people as less than or other or separate. And by his very life, he revealed what happens when liberation is proclaimed to a selfish world. The selfish world always reacts violently. We don't like it when things are challenging our systems, challenging our principles. The story of the Bible, though, has always been about surprise. It's always been about upending, God surprising us. And this is illustrated by a consistent focus in Scripture on the outsider or the unlikely. So in our Isaiah reading today, we continue to hear about a servant. We've heard about this before, and it kind of goes through this whole section of Scripture. And on one level, the servant, as you read this whole section, the servant represents Israel. 
This is who Israel is called to be. They are the servant. This is how they're to live and to be in the world. But then the language kind of narrows in in this portion of Isaiah, where it seems to speak not just about the whole nation of Israel, but about a specific person. One who is at the same time Israel and who they're called to be, but also a specific Messiah, messianic figure, a person who will bring justice and right order to the world. The servant, it says, has a mouth like a sharpened sword, has a polished arrow. But then we get to verse four, and it says that the servant has spent his strength in vain and for nothing. He has grown weary. His work seems to not have produced anything. And yet the servant says, I know I know who has my justice. I know who has reward in his hands. In other words, the story is not over. John Oswalt says, no Christian can read these words without relating them to the ministry of Jesus Christ. When he died, what had he accomplished? To all appearances, nothing. By every measure of the world, his life had been futile. So we see this in the life of Jesus, and then Paul draws on this language in Galatians 2, 2, where he wonders, okay, I've worked really hard to try to tell Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians that they're part of the same family, but is all of that in vain? Is all of that for nothing? Is it, to, he says, to no good effect? If we think about Dr. King and his life, in one of his sermons, he mentioned that he felt discouraged at times in his ministry and work. Riffing on the old song, There is a Balm in Gilead. King said, I don't mind telling you this morning that sometimes I feel discouraged. I felt discouraged in Chicago. As I move through Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama, I feel discouraged. Living every day under the threat of death, I feel discouraged sometimes. Living every day under extensive criticisms, I feel discouraged sometimes. Yes, sometimes I feel discouraged and I feel my work is in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. This discouragement can really be the plight of the Christian overall. Because the kingdom of our God looks so different from anything else in the world, there's often this lingering question, is what I'm doing anything? <laughs> Does it matter? Does it work? Am I producing anything? Now, of course, there are times in life where we see good fruit, and we can celebrate that and rejoice in that, but rarely is it the same good fruit that we expect by worldly systems. Rarely is it efficient or successful or dynamic by the world's standards. So this servant, it says, will gather Israel, but then it says it's not enough that they gather Israel, that the servant gather Israel. They also need to be a light to the Gentiles or will be a light to the Gentiles, but not on his own. This is the action of God himself, God working through the servant. This is God's work and not their work. Verse 7 even tells us the servant will be despised and abhorred by the nations. There will be a rejection that happens. This is what happens when the kingdom of God works in the world. There's naturally an impulse of rejection. That's selfishness. Jesus is a light to the nations. Jesus embodies the vocation of Israel, and yet the world rejects him. Now, growing up in church, I often heard passages like Isaiah 49.5 as purpose passages. We were so focused in my upbringing on an individual purpose and destiny. 
So we tended to individualize these readings. So I would say, God knew me before he formed me in my mother's womb. And of course, that's true. At least it's not not true. (laughs) It's true. But when we super individualize these passages first, what they do is they start to put pressure on ourselves to where we get to the point where we say, well, if I have this purpose and this destiny, it's really all up to me. God knew me, and I've got this giant purpose to fulfill in the world. And again, there's some truth in this. God does know you. God knows each of you individually and specifically. He loves you individually and specifically. He calls you in your everyday life to embody his mission. But only the past 500 years or so in history have we approached the Bible in this individualized way first, where we kind of look at it and say, what does this mean about me? The reality is, and this is good news, I hope we hear it as good news, this passage is not primarily about me or you. This is about God and what God is doing. In the ancient world, if you wanted to be a philosopher or someone who contributed meaningful thoughts to the world, your first task was to just copy other people. (laughs) It was to imitate other people. The whole world was driven on imitation. It was the whole thing. You copied, and then people copied you. You carried on the tradition. And then if someone asked who you are, what's your purpose, what's your destiny, it was defined by, well, I'm part of the people who are cobblers or blacksmiths or weavers or bakers, right? My identity is found in that tradition, that people. Then at the time before the Age of Enlightenment, about the 1500s forward, people started to question and scorn imitation, question and scorn tradition. So people no longer sought tradition, they wanted innovation. So there started to be a skepticism about past traditions. Now, not all of that was bad. It brought us a lot of good things in the world. Because of the Copernican revolution, we know that the earth revolves around the sun. Okay, that's an important discovery. We eventually found out that the earth is round and not flat, right? More things began to unfold. We have modern medicine, very thankful for all of these kind of things because we challenge tradition, and that's important. But the thought became, because tradition was wrong about a lot of things, we can no longer trust any tradition. The philosopher Descartes wrestled with this. He wondered, okay, if imitation and tradition no longer define who I am, if I'm no longer defined by being part of a people who have passed this down from generation to generation, who am I? What makes me a me? What makes me an I, right? He eventually concluded, what makes me me, what makes me who I am, is that I think. I have an ability to think. So he eventually concluded this really popular phrase, you know, I think, therefore I am. In the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche rejected the Christian view of God and developed this idea of the ubermensch or the superman. And the superman is the one who creates their own thing. They're not dependent on anything outside of their own individuality. So life is all about individual fulfillment. Well, in the midst of all of this shifting, the Christian faith has affirmed you are part of something bigger than yourself. It's not just about you. In fact, if your life is about you and you alone, you're missing something. The longing for human existence finds its home in a story, the people of God, and in a person, Jesus. 
So God is the agent of healing and restoration and is our final hope. Now, it is so incredibly liberating to know I'm not the hope of the world. (laughs) This means that our work and our relationships and our personalities can be rooted in something deeper than just myself or yourself. It is liberating to know you are not the hero of the story. God is. And by his grace, he calls you to a deeper life in him. Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians by reminding them of who they are in Christ. Christians carry a baptismal identity that's not based on our successes or even our behavior. That it's based on only what God has said about us. That in baptism, the Christian is a new person, a new creation. God's given us this new identity, but we don't often live up up to it. We often forget who we are. Paul wants the church to remember they've been sanctified. This is a fancy church word, meaning they're set apart to be holy. They're part of a family, the saints, Jew and Gentile, which was really controversial. You're all part of the family of God, all different backgrounds. You're here together. And Paul says grace and peace, some words that are familiar to us, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace means it's unearned. God's given you a gift. Peace means all is as it should be, God's order. And then Paul reminds the church they've been enriched in every way. They've been given all the spiritual gifts that they need. Now, if we keep reading the letter to the 1 Corinthians, we see that they have a lot of spiritual gifts going on in their church. Like, in fact, they really, really value these ecstatic spiritual gifts. And that started to be a problem. (laughs) But the antidote to, to their problem is recognizing God as the source of their gifts. That it's not about them and what gifts they have or even how much knowledge they have. It's about the God who has given them those gifts. And the purpose of the gifts in the Spirit is not arrogance about the gifts. It's to give glory to God. In many ways, epiphany is the season of gifts. Many of you know this, but like cultures, uh, many cultures throughout the world, they don't give gifts at Christmas They give gifts at Epiphany because it mirrors the Magi and the giving of the gifts of the Magi, which actually kind of makes more sense. But we see, even rumored in Christmas gifts, this idea of the unexpected. In a perfect world, this doesn't always work great with kids, but in a perfect world, a gift is open up the gift and are completely surprised, and it's you shouldn't have. This is, whoa, this is a gift I never would have expected, right? This is a rumor of grace. God gives us something we never would have expected. I love in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's uh, work, when Aslan, the redeemer figure in the story, is on the move. And winter breaks and spring starts to begin to spring. um, And we see that Father Christmas appears, which I remember as a kid I thought was so random. Like, why Santa Claus in the middle of this story about a lion and all these kind of things? But Father Christmas becomes the giver of gifts in the story. The children receive the gifts they will use in battle. And this is a rumor of spiritual gifts that they receive in the Christian life. So at the beginning of this letter, Paul simply reminds them of what God has done for them and their identity in Christ. Now, later in the letter, Paul is going to call the Corinthians on the carpet for their bad behavior because there's a lot of it. They're doing stuff that's just wrong. They're sleeping around a lot, including with family members. 
They're mixing their worship of God with the worship of other gods. They're separating the rich and the poor so that the rich get to take communion first. This is really harmful behavior. It would be tempting for Paul to just say, you're done. Like, I'm done. You're canceled, Corinthian church. Like, I'm, I'm over you now. But he doesn't. Instead, he reminds them of who they are. He recognizes their behavior doesn't line up with their identity. And he shows them this truth. I wonder if the best way to correct people in the context of Christian community is to remind them of who they are, of their baptismal identity. And Paul does this before he addresses any of their behavior. And then he does something incredible. And knowing what we know later on in the letter, this is radical. He says, I thank God for you. <laughs> so even with all the stuff you're doing, I thank God for you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about giving thanks in every spiritual community, even spiritual communities that he calls paltry and problematic. Have you ever been in any churches like that? Paltry and problematic? I have. He says this, and sometimes we can be a little paltry and problematic, I think, but he says this, what may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God. The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more surely and steadily will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. So we give thanks for the community that God has given us. Paul says they have everything that they need. They don't need a newfangled gift or ecstatic experience. They have it all. Even when life is boring or difficult, they don't need to chase after anything else beyond what they already have. But Paul says they don't lack any spiritual gift as they wait, verse 7. So in other words, no matter how gifted they may be in the present moment, we're still waiting for Christ to come again. Sorry about that. Is that me? Or should I move? Okay. <laughs> Go back? All right. All right, so Paul says they, they're waiting for Christ to come back. They still anticipate this future reality. In the meantime, the church must de depend on Christ's own work, not their work so that they might be blameless at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Your identity is part of God's family. It's not dependent on your behavior or your success or failure. It's only dependent on him. The Corinthians are not bearing the fruit that they need to bear, but God is faithful and their identity as part of the family is sure. I think about, uh, these days I know I'm drawing a lot of conclusions to parenting or connections with parenting. That's just my life. But um, Lucy is at this stage of her life where she is convinced she will never move out of our house, ever. She will never go to college. And that I will always read to her until she falls asleep for the rest of her life. Now, there's going to be a time where she probably won't think that anymore. And we will need to lovingly encourage her to explore her independence, which is good. And she'll want to. But right now, she just wants to live with us forever. And right now, my response is, you are always part of our family. You are always a sharp. You are welcome with us forever, and we will always be your parents. I think that the good news for us is we are always part of the family. 
that even if in our successes and failures and all of these things, we have a baptismal identity that is sure. When sin manifests in the life of the Christian, we should rightly call that out, but not because it's just a naughty thing to do, because it's something foreign to our true identity. We are the people who have been set free, and God will always be faithful to us no matter how messed up our behavior is because it's ultimately about God and about orienting our lives towards the reality of his lordship. In our gospel reading, John gets this. He, he knows, John the Baptist knows that this story is not about him. He believes he's part of something, but he's already deferring to Jesus. And if you read this section, you'll see that John has disciples. He has people following him. And yet the whole time, John's saying, no, look at this guy, look at Jesus. Twice, John declares, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Almost all of the early artistic depictions of John, and, and all throughout history, portray John the Baptist as pointing to a lamb. You've probably seen that. This is the defining characteristic of John's life, and the primary characteristic of the Christian life. We are a people who point away from ourselves and point to Christ. But why a lamb? Now, you got to bear with me here for just a minute. I think this is important for us. There are really three strands in the Old Testament that have to do with lambs, and each of them have something to say here. The first is the story of the Passover, and you're probably familiar with this story, the Exodus and the Passover, when the children of Israel are set free from slavery in Egypt. God commanded them to mark the doorposts of their homes with the blood of the lamb, so the angel of death, death would pass over their homes. They're identified as gods in this particular way. And this became a marker for the people of God. They're saved by the blood of the lamb. And then as they're set free and they go into the desert, God gives them his presence, a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of smoke by day. And then we see this slaughtering of lambs continues. It becomes a tradition. The lamb's blood meant liberation. It's a proclamation of God's faithfulness to them. And it was believed then that as the lamb was slaughtered in the temple it paved the way for God's spirit to dwell with his people. This is the Passover story. Now, in Jesus, John recognizes there's a new lamb of God who brings about liberation. This time, though, it's not just from slavery in Egypt. It's from the greatest enemy of all, death itself. And John sees that this lamb of God who's coming to the world, and then soon after that, what happens at his baptism is the spirit comes down and rests on him. Just as John predicted, he is the one who will baptize, not just with water like John, but with the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, after Jesus' death at the end of John's gospel, the resurrected Christ breathes his life, his spirit, on his disciples. John describes all of this in a profound, mysterious way. A new exodus has happened. A new Passover has happened. And there is a new Passover lamb. So this first thread, and I think it's the primary thread in the Gospels. Different people debate this, but when we talk about the Lamb of God, we're first talking about Passover. This is a new Passover Lamb in whom we are identified as the people of God. Sin is slavery. Counterfeit narratives, destructive behaviors, this is what sin does. It keeps us enslaved, and yet Jesus has brought about a new exodus. Liberation is here, and we've been set free from sin and death. So there's that string. Keep that in mind, the Passover lamb. And then there's the second image. In addition to Passover, there's another holiday in the Jewish calendar called Yom Kippur. 
And this is the day when worship and intercessions of Israel were all offered by one person, the high priest. The priest stood before the people as their representative. He did this for them and confessed their sins in their name. And he took this animal and somehow, and I know it's weird and mystical and creepy, but he took this animal and vicariously confessed all the sins of Israel as an act of penitence, acknowledging the just judgments of God. The high priest then took the blood of the lamb in a vessel, ascending the Holy of Holies, interceding for Israel, praying that God would remember his promises and graciously forgive them. Well, the New Testament writers, particularly the book of Hebrews, begin to see this as a foreshadowing of the priesthood of Christ. That Jesus comes from the Father to be our representative, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, in solidarity with humanity. And he offers the worship of humanity to the Father in a way we cannot offer it on our own. And in doing so, it's believed Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice at the same time. James Torrance writes, He offers not an animal, but himself in death, that he might be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, saying amen in our humanity to the just judgments of God. He does not appease an angry God to condition him into being gracious, but in perfect acknowledgement of the holy love of the Father for the sinful world, seals God's covenant purposes for all humanity by his blood. Okay, so we've got the Passover lamb, liberation, freedom. We've got the perfect sacrifice at the day of atonement, solidarity, stepping into our experience and therefore forgiving our sin. And then there's one more image that comes from a book that's not in our Bibles. But a lot of the um, early Christian writers knew this book and they borrowed from this book. And that's the book of First Enoch. And in this book, there's this really interesting story. At first I read this and I went, wow, that's creepy. But then I remembered that actually in the New Testament, there's a lot of creepy things too. <laughs> so it's just like all throughout. So in the book of Enoch, there's this story of a bunch of sheep who are being attacked and their lambs are being taken by wild beasts. But the sheep, they can't defend their lambs. They can't defend their kids. So suddenly, all of a sudden, one of the lambs grows horns, which is a symbol of power and dominion in the Bible. And this lamb receives a sword, and he grows up, and he vanquishes and destroys all the enemies in the sheepfold. This image is also present in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, 6. So this is the image of conquering the lamb who conquers. So somehow we have all three of these images, liberation, deliverance, we have atonement, and we have conquering that all kind of come together here in light of Jesus as the lamb of God. So when John proclaims Jesus is the lamb of God, all the people are hearing all of these images at once. He's in solidarity with humanity. He has set us free. He's come close. He's forgiven our sin and he's conquered all of our enemies. This image is often called the Agnus Dei. We sang that song today, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Actually, it was a prayer that we prayed. Jesus is both the suffering lamb and the victorious lamb. In our liturgy each week, as the body is broken, we say Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Fleming Rutledge ties all these themes together and writes, as the apocalyptic conquering lamb, he defeats sin, stamps it out, eradicates it. As the paschal or Passover lamb, he stands between us and the specter of death. 
As the sacrificial lamb, he gives his own blood to be the once for all offering to cleanse sin forever. This is what all these themes say to us. In Christ, we have the one who has suffered and has set us free. Somehow he has conquered not through the ways of the empires of the world, not through violence or revenge, domination, but not even through other things of the world like influence or fame. That's not how he conquers, but through solidarity and transforming love. This is true love, the true love which created the world. This is not the way of Caesar or any of the empires. This is the way of the lamb. And life is found not in the person with the most worldly power or strength or success, the person with the most charisma or the new thing that we can achieve. Our hope is in Jesus. In the rest of the gospel reading, John the Baptist shows us this. He points his disciples to Jesus. The disciples ask where Jesus is staying, and he says these words, come and see. Well, all throughout John's gospel, come and see is this phrase that's associated with revelation. We're about to be surprised. We're about to see something unexpected. The two disciples follow Jesus. They see where he's staying, and then it says they remain with him that day. Well, John is just great with words. So he takes this come and see, but then he also has this word remain that's used all throughout the gospel of John. Discipleship is not just about moments or events, it's about remaining. Remaining, though, sounds way more boring than arriving or transforming or making an impact, but it's so much better. I used to live right next to Titan Stadium, and a few years ago when they made the, a playoff run, I was rooting for them, like most of Nashville. But I can't hide the truth. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'm not a Tennessee Titans fan. I wanted to see our city do well, so I became a bandwagon fan along with most people in Nashville. But there are some people you'll meet who are remainers to the Tennessee Titans or whatever their team are. They stick around. They're not bandwagon fans. They're there in good times or in bad. Life in Christ is so sweet, but it's not set up for bandwagon fans. <laughs> it's about staying remaining in him. We are invited to come and see this thing that has happened, and we're called to invite others to come and see. When the disciples follow Jesus, they receive a completely new identity. So Andrew, when he, he experiences Jesus, he has to go tell his brother Simon. That's the only thing we hear about Andrew is he has to go tell his brother Simon. His identity has changed. Something in him has shifted. And then when Simon experiences Jesus, he's given a whole new name. <laughs> His name's not even Simon anymore, it's Peter. Today, we hear the good news of revelation, light, and surprise in the midst of exile, broken lives and relationships, and the counterfeit narratives of this world. Remember this week, the servant is here, even if his work is often ill-received and frustrating. When life and the Christian life seems either dull or boring or frustrating and difficult, remember that there is, a, there is something deeper going on, something deeper at work. The Christian's identity is never based on our behavior, but on the word of God and our identity in him. Jesus is the Lamb of God. 
Every day we are invited to come and see, to be surprised by him, and to remain with him. May we be a people who are secure in the faithfulness of God, that our entire lives would be lived in view of his faithfulness to us. Amen.